0: Podcastle, episode number 61. For July 14th, 2009. Hello, this is Rachel Spursky, Podcastle's chief editor. I was never much of a superhero aficionado growing up. Although when I was five years old, I used to go to my friend Mara's house to watch live-action Batman. It was on commercial television, which my parents forbade me to watch, so it was especially illicit and exciting and, you know, silly, but in a really wonderful way. Today I'm pleased to bring you our fourth giant episode, which is Tim Pratt's take on superheroes, Captain Fantasy and The Secret Masters. Tim Pratt's stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The year's best fantasy and horror, and other nice places, including PodCastle. He's won a Hugo and lost a Nebula. He lives in Oakland with his wife Heather Shaw and their son. Pratt is currently writing an urban fantasy series about ass-kicking sorcerer Marla Mason under the name T.A. Pratt. The fourth book, Spell Games, came out in March. He blogs at journalscape.com slash Tim and Twitters as Tim Pratt. Captain Fantasy and the Secret Masters first appeared in Realms of Fantasy in April 2003. It's read for us by Matthew Wayne Selznick, an author, musician, podcaster, and evangelist for the do-it-yourself ethic. His first book, Brave Men Run, is available from Swarm Press. He's presented several podcasts, including the MWS Media Radio Show podcast, 5-Minute Memoir, Writers Talking, and Sonatorium. He also has a new membership-driven serial fiction webzine, Hazy Days and Cloudy Nights, at HazyDaysAndCloudyNights.com. Links to this introduction are available online at podcastle.org. Enjoy the story!
1: Captain Fantasy and the Secret Masters by Tim Pratt Shortly before I met Captain Fantasy... I sliced the end of my forefinger off while dicing cucumber for a salad. I shouted and shook my hand, splashing blood on the counter and tearing the thin strip of skin that held my fingertip on. The tiny lump of flesh tore loose and flew into the sink, down the garbage disposal, gone. I cursed, then concentrated on my nerve endings, switching off the pain. My whole finger went numb. I had trouble controlling the nerves on such a small scale. Holding my finger in the air like a we're number one fan at a basketball game, I urged new flesh to grow over the wound. I'd make a few big hamburgers to go with my salad, supply some mass and calories for the healing. My new fingertip should be grown by morning, though the nail would take longer, and I'd have to either keep the nerves dead or be careful not to scrape the sensitive under-nail skin. The phone rang. I answered it, left-handed, clumsily. I expected my director, Jack Hera, to call and remind me of that night's dress rehearsal, as if I'd forget. I was playing Orestes, the lead, at Hera's Greek Revival Theater. Hello? Hi, Lee, Brady Doolittle said. I almost hung up. But why bother? They'd found me. Boss, I said, neutrally. I tendered my resignation. Not accepted, Brady said cheerfully. We need the best metamorph available, and that's you. We let you run loose for nearly a year. Never bothered you. Be grateful for that. So they'd kept tabs on me all along. Well, of course, the facility didn't lose track of people. Tomorrow's opening night. Can't it wait until your understudy Bill Monroe? He can handle it. By tomorrow night you'll be playing a much more important part. Brady knew everything. Always. That's why he ran the facility. I looked at the spots of blood on the counter and gave in. When can I expect you? A car is waiting outside. Pack a bag. He paused. I think you'll like this one, Lee. Sure. I hung up. I didn't have to pack a bag. I already had one ready, a change of clothes, travel-size toiletries. Old habits die hard. Walking to the car, an anonymous government sedan, I thought, I'm like Orestes, trapped by cruel fate. I had to smile at that. Such melodrama. Even if I had to play the part of Secret Agent again, I didn't have to ham it up. Several hours and a plane trip later, I found myself back in the facility. You never get away, I thought. What did you do to your finger? Brady asked, bushy eyebrows raised over his boyish face. He motioned me into the elevator. Nice face, by the way. Very Greek. I grunted and stared at the elevator doors, listening to the facility hum around me as we descended. Brady didn't speak again, didn't try to draw me out and I finally asked the question that had been plaguing me. Is this about Kelly? Has she done something else? Yep. Makes the rainy day affair look like tea time, too. I had a hard time believing that. Kelly, with the help of the mad Dr. Nefarious, had wrecked havoc with the world's weather the year before, until I stopped them. We'd captured Dr. Nefarious, but Kelly, the mastermind, had escaped. What could be worse than endless rain drowning the world? The doors opened and Brady led me down a long white corridor. Is that why you said I'd like this? I asked. Because Kelly is involved? You think I want another chance at her? Brady shook his head. Now, I know you aren't the vengeful type. There's another reason you'll like it. Brady stopped at a reinforced door. He touched a palm reader, pressed his eyes to a retinal scanner, spoke his name loudly, and punched a long string of numbers into the keypad. I watched with interest and apprehension. Extreme security measures, even for the facility, which meant... The door slid open, revealing another corridor. Floors, walls, and ceiling were all the color of used motor oil, and cameras bristled every couple of feet. Welcome to the Black Wing, Lee. I didn't step inside. I heard you've got Bludgeon Man locked up in here, and Junior Atwater's brain in a jar. Yeah, I've heard those two, Brady said. People believe any damn thing, don't they? Now come on, if this door stays open too long, alarms go crazy and we'll be neck deep in very tense guards. I stepped over the threshold. The black wing was like the inside of a tumor. No wonder mental institutions favor soothing colors to pacify the patient's. These walls had the opposite effect. They could drive a sane person mad. The black wing surely held a few mental patients, the ones with extraordinary powers, the ones who could enforce their delusions on the world if they got free. Is Kelly here? I asked as the door slid shut. Now, we've got a room all picked out for her. She's been here recently, though. She broke someone out. Brady smiled at my shocked expression. That's top secret, you understand. He pressed a finger to his lips. That's impossible. Yeah, we thought so, too, until she did it. She had inside help, of course, and it couldn't happen again. But once was enough. He led me around a corner, to a black golf cart. Brady got behind the wheel, and I sat beside him. The cameras turned and followed our progress like the heads of watchful jackals. We rode past blank metal doors set at regular intervals. How many inmates are there? I asked. I'd served with the facility as a field agent for years, but I'd never seen the black wing. Metamorphs are masters of disguise, born imposters, and our usual assignments don't require access to the holding cells for superpowered criminals. Way too many and not nearly enough, Brady said. We turned a corner, and I finally saw something that broke the monotonous black. One of the cell doors, bent and twisted, leaned against the wall across from a gaping doorway. I whistled. How did that happen? I don't see any marks from explosives. Brady stopped the cart. Carl Spandau, one of our guards, a strong man with a titanium alloy skeleton. We spent a lot of money giving him a set of bones that could support the strain his power put on his body. Then he betrayed us. We found him with his arms broken from tearing off the door, crying, but not from the pain. He disabled the teleport dampeners, the quantum entanglement disruptors, all the failsafes stuff he shouldn't have known about, codes he'd spent months ferreting out. Kelly bounced in, snatched up our prisoner, and teleported away. Without Spandau. That's why he was crying. He said he loved her and refused to believe she'd just been using him. I nodded solemnly. Kelly could make you believe anything. I didn't ask what happened to Spando. I know how the facility deals with traitors. Who'd she break out? I asked, not irritated at Brady's vagueness, simply needing to know so I could do my job. Seeing the black wing breached, hearing about poor, stupid, traitorous Carl Spandau's arms had changed my resentful resignation to acceptance. I'd do what I had to. Joseph Mangala got away. "'Brady said quietly. "'I stared at him as uncomprehending "'as if he'd said Rasputin had escaped "'or Vlad Tepes. Mengela? "'The angel of death, "'the mad doctor of Auschwitz. "'But he's dead! "'They found his skeleton in 85. "'It was all over the papers.' "'People believe any damn thing,' "'Brady said quietly. "'We've had him for years. "'He's almost 90 now, "'frail but physically healthy, "'considering. Why? I demanded. He should have been tried at Nuremberg. He was the worst of the war criminals, so cold. And and the experiments? I broke off, staring at Brady. Brady looked away. Yes, the experiments. Mengele studied the limits of special powers, did things no ethical science could. But the knowledge? He shrugged. We needed it. I nodded disgusted. The facility depended on people like me and Spandau, metamorphs and strongmen, as well as the mind-readers, pyrokinetics, teleporters, invisibles, all the extraordinary ones. And Mengele had studied our kind, dissected us, tested us to destruction. The Nazis, fascinated with the concept of supermen, had a special interest in such individuals, just like the facility did. You want me to bring Mengele back? In a nutshell. But why me? What, I disguise myself as the Fuhrer, say, I didn't die in that bunker, Joseph. Come with me. Why do you need a metamorph? We need you to impersonate someone, of course. Then, sounding doubtful for the first time, that's the part you'll like. Brady drove past the torn door. I want you to meet somebody. Who else do you have in here? Stalin? Genghis Khan? Colonel Kurtz? You don't want to know, Brady said. Even without the familiar costume, I recognized him immediately. Hearing about Mengele had stunned me. Seeing this man, here, left me literally incapable of speech. The captain looked just like he had in the old pictures and newsreel footage from World War II. He should have been at least 75, but he looked no older than 30. He doesn't age, I thought, chilled and awed at the same time. No one had ever known the full extent of Captain Fantasy's reality-altering powers. In the war, he and his sidekick, Spaceboy, had routed the Germans time and again, though Baron von Blitz managed to kill Spaceboy near the end of the war, and they said the captain was never the same after that. Captain Fantasy sat behind a white table. He was a massive, red-haired man dressed in green clothes that resembled intern's scrubs, a red and blue plastic top spun before him on the table. He stared at the toy intently, his teeth clenched in concentration. "'Oh, Captain, my Captain,' Doolittle said. The Captain looked up, and I glimpsed his bewildered expression, quickly replaced by a broad smile. "'Why, you must be a doctor!' The top fell over, I looked at Brady, unease, crawling like a worm in my stomach in his jeans and black t-shirt. Brady looked nothing like a doctor. The captain lowered his voice. Was it a mortar, doc from Baron von Blitz's artillery? He tapped the side of his head. I heard Spaceboy yell, and then poof, everything black. I must have taken one right to the head, huh. Brady didn't say anything, just stood with his arms crossed. I looked at Captain Fantasy, my childhood hero, and my throat closed up. Space Boy had been dead for 40 years. I remembered watching Captain Fantasy deliver the eulogy on television. That was before my time, of course, but even in the 60s, when I grew up, Captain Fantasy was a celebrity, with films and books, cartoons and lunchboxes, all chronicling his wartime glories. When Brady didn't answer, the captain's grin faltered, and that disturbing look of naked confusion returned. Doolittle turned on his heel and left the room. With a last look at the captain, I hurried after him. Is it amnesia? I asked when Brady closed the door. But that didn't seem right. The captain remembered Spaceboy and Baron von Blitz, and I didn't doubt that he remembered Goebbels and the Hitlerbot and Mengele's homiculi. Just nothing after the battle when Spaceboy died. I narrowed my eyes. Or did the facility do this to him? No, it wasn't us, Brady said. Demonstrations work better than explanations. Come on. He went back into the captain's room. Feeling like an extra in a Chaplin film or a keystone cop running in circles, I followed him. The captain still sat, his toy spinning. He looked up, smiling. Hey there! You must be a doctor! I gasped. The scene was too strange, too eerily similar to the first time we'd come in. Like someone had hit a great reset button and started the whole encounter over. The captain looked at me. Is Spaceboy all right? The Baron really got the drop on us, huh? He ran a huge hand through his hair. Have you ever seen us before? Doolittle asked. The captain laughed, a scattered sound. Oh, <laughs> I meet lots of people, you know. I've never been good with faces. Have you seen anyone else in the last few minutes? The captain shook his head. No, sir. I've been sitting right here since I woke up. Just take it easy, captain. We'll bring you some food and fill you in on things. But Space Boy, is he all right? Oh, yes. He's fine. I stared at Doolittle. Was he being cruel or kind? And what had happened to Captain Fantasy? Doolittle motioned me back into the black hallway. Karsakov syndrome, he said. A rare neurological disorder. It's a nasty form of amnesia. Basically destroys the brain's ability to hold short-term memories. Long-term memory is unaffected, So he knows who he is and remembers his life, but he can't hold on to new memories for more than a few minutes. He lives in a perpetual present. He's met me dozens of times, but he can't remember. He doesn't even know anything's wrong, or if he does suspect that something's amiss, he doesn't know what. I nodded, trying to process the information. It was like being a child and learning my parents were mortal, that they could make mistakes, a blow to my whole world view. I'd always thought of Captain Fantasy as, well, invincible. Why doesn't he remember anything after that last battle? Doolittle shrugged. Sometimes Karsakob's is retrograde, destroys a portion of the long-term memory, too. The Captain's memories stop in 1945. What causes it? I'm no doctor. Bad brains, I guess. I understand that if you're predisposed anyway, heavy drinking can lead to the onset of Karsakovs. You probably didn't know. They kept it out of the media, but the captain went downhill after the war, and drinking was only part of it. He wanted to come out of retirement and help with the China problem back in 55. But then all that mess with Bludgeon Man and the Atwater coup happened. Then, in 75, we got word that Captain Fantasy had showed up at a pub in New York, dressed in full costume demanding to know where Space Boy was. The facility picked him up. He's been here ever since. I sat on the golf cart. This is a lot to absorb. He even looks the same. He doesn't think he's any older, so he isn't. We think that's why he's invincible, too. Most kids think they're invulnerable. They take stupid risks and get hurt. But the captain never got hurt, because while he believed himself invincible, he was. He grew up that way, never had a reason to believe differently. I guess he just never worried about his mental health. Or, hell, maybe his power has a negative effect on brain chemistry. Who knows? This is sad, I said at last. But what does it have to do with Kelly and with the rest of it? The captain could help us with Mangala, I guess, if he were healthy. This is the part you'll really like, Brady said. You're going to impersonate Space Boy and, with the captain's help, apprehend Kelly and Mengele. I put my head in my hands. You'd better explain how that's going to work. All in good time. First, let's get you to wardrobe. Silver tights. Silver boots. Even the laces. A silver shirt with long sleeves accordioned at the elbows. Silver gloves, fortunately, to cover my damaged forefinger a silver domino mask, Space Boy's famous skin-tight costume, tailored perfectly to fit me. I looked in the mirror and watched my facial muscles bunch, move, and tighten. Occidental eyes, a rounder chin, snub nose, that rosebud, almost girlish mouth. I leached the pigment from my face, changing the Greek cast I'd affected for my part as Orestes. I compared my face in the mirror to a small photograph and nodded, satisfied. "'I've got the face right, and the hair's okay. "'But I'm three or four inches too tall. "'There's nothing I can do about that.' "'Close enough for jazz,' Doolittle said. "'The captain is desperate to see something familiar, to find his bearings. "'We could wrap you in aluminum foil, and he'd believe you were Space Boy.' "'I plucked at the seat of the silver costume. "'Foil wouldn't be so tight.' If the captain had a girl sidekick, she couldn't have gotten away with wearing something like that, Doolittle agreed. Your costume's better than Spaceboy's original. Bulletproof, shock-absorbent, and made of smart cloth with its own musculature. Brady grinned. He looked like a wolf at a lamb shearing. To help you do the somersaults and shit. I groaned. I'd kept in shape, but Spaceboy's famed speed and acrobatics were beyond me. Spaceboy had trained as a teenage gymnast, and during his three years with Captain Fantasy, he'd pushed his flexibility to the limit. So we tell the captain that Mengel is hiding out, and we have to bring him to justice. Then we ride out in the fantasy copter and apprehend the villainous, etc. You should write briefings, Brady said. You're so good at abstracting the essentials from a plan. He led me out of wardrobe to the elevator. But he forgets everything after five minutes, I protested. How is he supposed to remember the mission? Brady turned a key in the elevator and punched the buttons that would take us to the black wing. In some cases of Karsikov's, surrounding the victim with familiar things brings a sense of continuity. In one case, a patient was driven to his old neighborhood. He perked right up, wanted to know how they'd put up a supermarket overnight, but otherwise he thought things were fine. They took him to his old house, and he sat at his favorite chair, tapped his barometer, read a book. He wondered why his wife had Changed the drapes, but he didn't notice that his wife had aged five years. Brady looked at me pointedly. Close enough for jazz, I murmured. So seeing me and riding in a replica of the fantasy copter, you think that'll keep him in the present? He'll still believe it's 1945, but that's okay. He's willing to fool himself a lot. The elevator stopped. As we stepped into the hallway, I asked, What happened to that guy you were telling me about when he had to leave his house? They took him back to the hospital. He cried and screamed, asked his wife why she'd brought him to such a place, why she was leaving him. God, I said, chilled by the image. Pretty awful. But ten minutes later, he'd forgotten all about it. We entered the black wing and returned to the golf cart. Where do we begin? I asked, sitting down. Doolittle handed me an envelope. I wasn't surprised to find it addressed to me. The facility had intercepted my mail. I opened it and removed the little card inside, decorated with balloons and party hats. Come to my party, it read, in festive blue and red letters. Inside, it read, Join the secret masters in celebration of Kelly's birthday. Under time, it read, As convenient. Under place, it gave a set of coordinates. In the Atlantic Ocean, Brady said, Is she on a boat? Not that our satellites can see, but we figure it's not a wild goose chase. Kelly likes to play games, but not that kind, I said. What's this secret master's stuff? Well, it's just speculation, but a lot of high-powered fugitives and crazies have been inactive, dropping out of sight lately. Thunderhead, Brainchild, The Teacher, Broadside, Svengali Briggs. No activity for months. We think Kelly's gathering the bad guys together. The old Legion of Supervillains gag, you know? I nodded. Seems like her style. Into the viper pit, huh? At least you'll have the greatest hero in history at your side. I'd rather have a crack facility squad. They'll be nearby. If things get out of hand, they'll try to contain the situation. Why take the captain at all? I mean, if he had full possession of his faculties... Brady handed me another envelope. Because she invited him, too. And Kelly's promised to do some nasty things if he doesn't show up. As a demonstration, she bombed Easter Island, wiped it out. And we didn't even see how she deployed the weapon, though, fortunately, it seems to be a clean bomb. Some toy Dr. Nefarious made for her, probably, during the rainy day affair. She said Christmas Island would go next "'then a little town called Thanksgiving, Pennsylvania.' "'He tapped the captain's invitation, "'in keeping with her holiday theme. "'That's crazy,' I said. "'What does she want with Captain Fantasy?' "'What does she want with Mengele? "'He's almost totally senile. "'Why does she do anything? "'Crazy's right.' "'When the captain saw me in costume, "'disguised as space boy, "'he rushed across the room and embraced me, "'lifting me off my feet.' I expected to be crushed into bone jelly, but the captain squeezed gently. I thought you were done for, he whispered, reddish stubble rubbing my cheek. I am, I thought, feeling lower than dogshit, blown to meat and splitters and scraps of cloth forty-five years ago. The captain let go. Not me, captain, I said, pitching my voice higher than normal. My facility with vocal impressions has always been an asset on my assignments. I surprised myself by saying, Leaping lizards, Captain! They couldn't get me! Leaping lizards. A classic Spaceboy exclamation, and it had simply popped out. Had I assumed the role so completely? Or did Captain Fantasy's ability to warp reality extend beyond his personal space? Was he, in some fashion, transforming me into space boy? The idea bothered me, and I began to sweat. I shut off my glands so the captain wouldn't notice. "'Captain,' I said gravely, wanting to get it over with, "'we have a problem!' Mangala, Captain Fantasy said, walking quickly up the stairs, red cape flapping, black boots thudding on the risers. "'I've been waiting for a chance at him. Is the helicopter prepared, space boy?' "'Right on the roof, Captain!' I said, hurrying after him. "'And I've got the coordinates!' God bless American military intelligence, the captain said reverently, and then burst through the door, onto the roof. A pale blue sky stretched above us, touching the low, scrub-covered mountains. The air smelled of desert sage. The fantasy copter, a low-slung two-seater in red and cobalt blue, crouched like a lethal dragonfly a dozen yards away. Captain Fantasy strode across the roof and opened the cockpit. I hurried around the other side to join him, ducking as the long rotors began to turn, lazily at first, then with invisible speed. I belted in, light-headed. Captain Fantasy gave me a thumbs-up and took the controls. I grinned, feeling strangely exuberant. I shouldn't be so excited, I thought. This is serious. But I was in a helicopter with Captain Fantasy, about to fight the forces of villainy at his side. It was a childhood dream come true. The helicopter lifted off, and we zoomed toward the ocean. "'It's nearby!' I said, shouting to be heard over the helicopter's machinery. We skimmed close to the water, not moving very quickly. I looked at the placid expanse of blue-green water, seeking something out of the ordinary, some indication of Kelly's presence. "'I don't—' Something boiled up from the ocean, but before I could make it out, we'd flown past.' Then the helicopter jerked, throwing me hard against my straps. I squawked and choked, unable to take a breath, and water rushed up at the cockpit's windshield. We smashed into the ocean. I dangled in my seat, facing the water-occluded windshield, amazed that the impact hadn't hurt me more. The smart cloth in my costume had spread the impact evenly across my body. Behind us, metal sheared as the rear of the helicopter parted from the front. I smelled smoke. The captain unhooked his harness and dropped to the windshield, which had taken the place of the floor. I followed suit. With the back half of the copter ripped off, the sky showed clear and blue above us, the cockpit transformed into a shallow cup floating on the ocean. The captain reached under his seat and slung scuba gear toward me. I scrambled into the tank and mouthpiece. i just pulled on my flippers when something ripped the cockpit apart. I saw tentacles the size of fire hoses— And then the sea rushed in, bowling me over and dunking me. I forced myself to remain calm despite my heart's thundering and the shock of cold water. My silver suit began heating immediately. Captain Fantasy was treading water several feet away, and I swam toward him, kicking hard against the undertow created by the sinking copter. I didn't see tentacles, but that didn't reassure me. If some monster inhabited the water with us, I wanted to be close to the captain. I looked up, expecting facility agents to sweep in for the rescue. The sky remained clear. Were they so confident that we could handle this? Or had Brady lied about our backup? The captain wrapped one gauntleted arm around my waist and held me up easily, my rear pressed against his pelvis. I blushed when I realized what I felt pressing against me through the captain's wet tights. Evidently, danger excited him. I forgot about the captain's arousal when tentacles broke the surface again, a dozen waving in the air as if attempting some strange semaphore. Several of the tentacles were torn, gushing blood, probably ripped off when they grabbed the fantasy copter and brought us down. The tentacles were bad, but then I saw the rest. A blunt shark's head broke the surface, four feet across, with ten-inch-long teeth marching back row by row in its gaping mouth. Crude black stitching crossed its head. One saucer-sized eye stared at us, black, and a cobwebby cataract gummed the other. A small metal lens glinted between its natural eyes. I wet myself, and if the captain hadn't helped me, I would have swum away as fast as possible. I hadn't signed up to face monsters, at least not inhuman ones, and my thrill at fighting by the captain's side didn't include facing something like this. The captain tossed me aside with a bellow. I hit the water, sank, and emerged in time to see the captain leap from the water and drive his arm up to the elbow in the shark's good eye. He crouched on its snout, heedless of its snapping jaws, and pulled out a handful of red and gray matter. The tentacles lashed spastically, and I occupied myself with avoiding them. After a few seconds, they stopped moving, and I looked back at the captain. Captain. His arms were bloody to the shoulders. He waved jauntily at the dead shark thing's camera eye, then ripped out the metal and tossed it into the water. He jumped off and side-stroked casually toward me. The shark rolled over and floated, belly to the sky, tentacles trailing beside it like catfish whiskers. "'Looks like one of Dr. Morlock's creatures,' the captain said. I blinked at him, looked at the shark, and said, "'Jumping jackals, captain, you're right!' Dr. Morlock had worked with Mengele, but his experiments involved enhancing natural predators. One of his creations had killed him in 46 or 47, if I recalled, so he couldn't be responsible for this monster. But if he hadn't made this shark, why the crude stitching, Dr. Morlock's signature? I looked at the captain. My bowels clenched. The captain believed it was 1945. Had the force of his belief acted to alter local time? Could he be so powerful? Had he plunged us into a long-past sea battle with Dr. Morlock? It's impossible, I thought, but knew with Captain Fantasy anything could happen. The captain tenderly pulled my face mask down over my eyes. He touched my cheek and smiled. Come on! I think Mengele and Morlock are below us. Then... Without so much as taking a deep breath, he dove beneath the waves. I've always wanted to see a U-boat, I thought miserably. If I hadn't already emptied my bladder, I would have wet myself again. Not a submarine, as I'd expected. A submerged city. Specifically, the squat metal starfish of the Nazi Unterseeberg the Reich's main submarine base, the bunker to which Goebbels fled during the German collapse. The captain swam toward the dimly phosphorescent building, and I frog-kicked after him, letting the smart suit do most of the work. Faced with this impossible artifact from the past, my mind reeled. I stared at the dark metal sprawl, thinking, No, no, no. The Unterseeberg clung to an artificial reef, only a few hundred yards below the surface. The Allies had torpedoed that stronghold, and Goebbels with it, at the end of the war. There should have been ruins, twisted metal beams grown thick with barnacles, but not a complete city. Its presence confirmed my fears. Captain Fantasy's delusion had become reality, and we'd gone back in time. Would I become space boy next? Before I could give in to despair or simply freeze in light of the situation's enormity, frogmen streamed from an airlock, and I had to fight. I dodged speargun bolts, astonished and terrified by my own agility, seeing it as another indication that I was becoming space boy. The smartcloth alone couldn't account for my new lightning reflexes and dexterity, astonishing even underwater. The captain moved more ponderously, but dealt with the divers efficiently, tearing aside their antiquated, to my eyes, gear, slamming their heads together, kicking them in their stomachs. When the last frogman fled toward the surface, I joined the captain at the diver's airlock. The captain punched through the reinforced steel and peeled it back, gesturing for me to go through the hole. I slithered in, and the captain widened the hole and followed. Once inside, he tugged the ragged edges back into place and rubbed his hand rapidly in circles across the torn metal. After a few seconds, a red glow appeared beneath his hand, and the water around the door began to boil. The steel under Captain Fantasy's hand turned molten in the cracks, and the captain stopped rubbing. He'd created enough friction to melt steel and make the airlock watertight again. He hit the decompression button, and the water level in the lock sank. I felt triumphant, just being with the captain, forgetting for a moment the temporal situation. It occurred to me, an instant later, that the exultation I felt might be space boys, and wondered how the change might happen, a transformation of my personality into that of the captain's dead sidekick. Would I feel it happen? The last of myself dissolving, finally becoming my role as I'd never managed in the past? The captain kicked right through the interior door, tearing a wide opening. I followed him into a well-lit, narrow corridor that curved away after a few yards. Clunky surveillance cameras observed us. The captain whooped and smashed the cameras, hopping to reach them. I grinned through my mouthpiece. The captain had so much fun fighting the forces of evil. That joyfulness accounted for most of his popularity. When he'd killed all the cameras in that deserted length of corridor... The captain took me in his arms and kissed me, full on the lips. Stunned, I-, I didn't react at all, even to resist. The captain's stubble dug into my chin, and his huge arms held me tight. He put me down, gently, and said, Let's go get Mangala." Then he ran, boots pounding. I followed, things coming clear in my mind. That first embrace. The captain's extremity of grief when the real space boy died. The way he'd raged and destroyed Baron Von Blitz and his artillery on that sad day. The captain's bachelorhood. Maybe even space boy's skin-tight silver costume. All those things made sense now. In the 40s, homosexual heroes wouldn't have been tolerated. And even now, no one would accept a 17-year-old boy lover. I doubted Brady knew about this or that anyone else did. I probed myself for signs of arousal. If I felt attracted to the captain, would that indicate a step in my transformation? I couldn't discern any reaction other than shock. Somewhat reassured, but much more conscious of my skin-tight suit, I followed him. Several corridors later, the captain battered his way through another door and shouted in triumph from the other side. I hurried after him, and at the far end of a low, oblong room, I saw Dr. Morlock and the storm troop waiting for us. That proved it. We'd gone back in time. We faced the German Übermenschen, the high-profile PR warriors, the Reich's answer to the Allies Captain Fantasy and Fat Man and Corporal Justice. Baron von Blitz stepped toward us, sneering in his blue uniform, silver lightning bolts on his sleeves, huge black goggles covering half his face. His lieutenants flanked him. Krieger and Adler, massive twins, one a strong man, the other a flyer. They wore contrasting red and white costumes. The rear guard, Brickhouse, didn't move. He'd once been an American citizen, but had become a Nazi sympathizer and defector. His invulnerable skin gleamed like red metal under the harsh lights. Off to one side, the diminutive doctor Morlock in his white lab coat rubbed his hands together and giggled. I stopped a few paces behind the captain, and for a long moment we faced the troop. This is it, I thought, a tight ball of fear in my belly, the sort of thing I dreamed of as a stupid kid, fighting genuine villains beside a true hero. The captain that unparalleled man of action, broke the pause. He charged them. I noticed the long slots in the floor then, laid at right angles, a crazy grid work that made no sense but alarmed me anyway. I shouted a warning, and in mid-cry metal walls rose from the slots with the sound of smooth hydraulics. I jumped aside to avoid being cut apart, seeing the light gleam from the razor-sharp edges on top of the wall in front of me. I stared at my reflection in the mirrored wall and understood... The slots in the floor, the bizarre grid lines. This was a maze separating me from the captain. I tried to remember the layout of the slots, but I'd only seen them for a moment and couldn't recall anything useful. Would the captain maintain continuity without my presence, faced only with his reflection? Or would he wander lost in the maze? Did he even need me for continuity anymore, since his delusion had become reality? A great crash and the shriek of stressed metal interrupted Dr. Morlock's continuing titter. I grinned, unable to help myself. The maze hadn't daunted the captain at all. He simply smashed his way through, not altering his course a bit. I wanted to join him. With my smart suit and a hint of Space Boy's agility, I could clamber over the walls and be sliced in two by the razor-sharp edges. But wasn't there a trick to mazes? Taking only right turns or something? If I could reach the place where the captain started busting through walls, I could follow his route. The crashing sound of his progress went on. I hurried down the corridor and turned right into a cul-de-sac, but not an empty one. Baron Von Blitz leered at me. My heart hammered. He'd killed the original space boy, and now he'd kill me. I had to run to escape. And then he reached out, holding a stun stick, and struck me over the heart. My muscles contracted, and I fell to the floor, blacking out. My last thoughts weren't panicked, or angry, or regretful. Instead, my mind made a cool observation. They didn't have stun sticks during World War II. They hadn't been invented yet. I woke up slowly, like a man swimming out of a black pool into the light. I jerked against the cords holding me to a straight-backed chair, startled by the closeness of Dr. Morlock's pale face, his watery eyes staring at me. Up close, I could see through his disguise. Not Dr. Morlock at all. I couldn't remember his real name, but he called himself Brainchild, and he occupied a respectably high position on the facility's most wanted list. In my time. He'd shaved his head and put on horn-rimmed glasses, heightening a natural resemblance to the infamous doctor, but the disguise didn't hold up under scrutiny. Still close enough. Close enough for jazz. I began to understand the what's, though the why's still escaped me. He's awake, Kelly, brainchild said, his breath puffing the smell of butter and cheese into my face. He pinched my cheek, hard. You look just like Space Boy. Good job, Scout. I barely heard him, straining against my ropes to look for Kelly. Author of my despair, The pretty stiletto, the birthday girl playing some bizarre party game of her own devising. Playing with the world, but playing more immediately with me. Brainchild scuttled away and Kelly stepped into my field of vision. Beautiful. Made up like a 40s movie star in a sea-green silk party gown. She looked like Veronica Lake, full blonde hair falling to her shoulders, a just-so beauty mark over the corner of her mouth. She laced her hands together and smiled at me maternally. David, she said, then wrinkled her nose. I've finally found out your first name. It's too boring. Let's stick with Lee. So macho, so monosyllabic. You probably wonder why I brought you here, and in such a complicated fashion. You wanted the captain, I said, trying to sound bored. You knew about his condition. You knew how to create continuity by surrounding him with familiar people and things. You built this replica of the unter You got your cronies to dress up like famous period Nazis. I inclined my head, as much as possible, against the ropes, toward Brainchild. I figure Thunderhead isn't the one posing as Von Blitz. I'm not sure about the others. And it worked. Where's the captain now? In a white room, of course. Living in the now. She seemed amused. "'Anything you don't understand, oh, wise Mr. Lee?' "'Lots of things. But I asked the question most pertinent to my mission. "'Why did you free Mengele?' "'To execute him.' We ejected his body, what remained of it, into the water this morning. She lifted one elegant eyebrow at my surprise. "'Shocked? He was hopelessly senile. Worthless to us, anyway.' Mengele's execution came as a condition of Brainchild's cooperation. Without him, we couldn't have built this base or engineered that monstrous shark we used as a prop. Brainchild wanted Mengele dead, and I could deliver. So we made an arrangement. I remembered Brainchild's real name then, Itzhak Goldberg. I didn't know anything about his relatives or where they'd been during World War II, but I could make certain guesses and even sympathize a little i got an hour alone with him brainchild said looking down at his pudgy hands making fists and then relaxing them i shivered monster or not war criminal or not i didn't want to think of senile Mangala in brainchild's vengeful hands i thought it made a nice bit of misdirection too kelly said let them think i had some plans for Mangala." His relationship to Captain Fantasy, however tangential, served to make the distraction plausible, don't you think? I grunted. Kelly leaned forward, put her hands on my shoulders, and looked into my face. I could read nothing in her green eyes. There are things Brady didn't tell you, Lee. Imagine. Your own superior, lying to you. Did he tell you about the Tourettes? About the neurological disorders? I didn't answer. Name, rank, serial number, I thought. That's the way the captain would play it. I'd said too much already. I know he didn't. Captain Fantasy has Karsikov's syndrome. You know that. And he warps reality. You know that, too. You had no reason to think of those facts in combination. It's a well-kept government secret. Prolonged exposure to Captain Fantasy results in neurological damage, Lee. It's like a radiation he gives off. She smiled. Spaceboy, the the original, had Tourette's. You know about that condition, a brain disorder. Symptoms include vocal and physical tics. Leapin lizards, Captain. She mimicked Spaceboy with vicious accuracy. Touretters often have amazing reflexes too. They're attracted to shiny things and things that move quickly. Some of them make a game of darting in and out of revolving doors. They're that fast. Ah, the light dawns. Been feeling frisky and fidgety, haven't you, Lee? Yes. You've got Tourette's, too, though not as severely as Spaceboy did. I blew air hard through my teeth. It all made sense, and it made me furious. Brady had known. He'd exposed me to brain damage, and he hadn't told me. For the greater good, right. That's the facility's excuse for everything. And the worst thing is, it so often holds up. It could be worse. You could have developed aphasia or lost your kinesthetic sense or even gotten karsakovs yourself. Do you see, Lee, how your masters would have wasted you? She took her hands off my shoulders, touched my face. Join me. Let's wreck the governments. Teach them all a hard lesson. They deserve it, and I wouldn't waste you. I smiled a little. Fuck the world, right, Kelly? She smiled back, indulgent, pleased. Yes, Lee. Fuck the world. I can't do it! Her smile disappeared. You remain loyal to the facility after all this? Then you're a fool. I shook my head as much as the bindings would allow. I don't care about the facility. You're right. They're bastards. But you want to use Captain Fantasy somehow, and I can't go along with that. Because he's a real hero, even if he is sick, even if he makes other people sick. He'd die to save the world, Kelly. I won't help you use him to hurt it. Then we'll have to use you, she said, sounding regretful. Because you're right. He would die to save the world. But he'd kill to save Space Boy. I'd hoped you would cooperate, but we can do what's necessary anyway. Dear Lee, my worthy opponent. She kissed her fingertips and touched my cheek, then walked away, swaying beautifully in her gown, sinuous as a cobra. Brainchild drugged me, and after a while I woke in the central hub of the Unterseeberg, suspended twenty feet above the floor, The transparent dome overhead revealed the vast, dark water and creatures moving in it, brainchilds' creations. I looked upward groggily for a long time before noting my surroundings. I moved my arms and legs experimentally, found myself unbound. They put me inside a transparent glass box, coffin-sized but upright, hanging from the ceiling. I lowered my head, taking in the narrow platform under my feet and the people below. I saw Captain Fantasy first. He looked up at me, veins standing out in his neck, huge fists clenched. The impostors stood a respectful distance away, Morlock and Blitz, with Kelly clinging to the Baron's arm like an airhead showpiece. My head began to clear. I heard a click and then the crackle of a hissing speaker. How nice of them to let me listen to the conversation. The Baron spoke, loud, haughty, with a terrible German accent. Do you agree to our terms, Captain? Will you do as we say? Strike where we tell you. If you do not... I could imagine his sneer, the only bit of mimicry Thunderhead did well. Your little sidekick dies. He gestured imperiously, and Brainchild pulled a lever, giggling like Dr. Morlock. I heard the sound and understood before I looked down. Plates in the floor slid aside, revealing a dark pit full of spinning silver blades. I couldn't see the area directly below my feet, but I imagined more of the same, enough circular saws to make me into luncheon meat. Such drama, I thought, knees weak, suddenly very aware of the flimsy metal platform under my feet. I twisted enough to look down and see the hinges, built to let the platform swing open and drop me. Probably another lever to control that. One pull by Dr. Morlock, and down I'd go. Great job. Full-time hostage. Don't hurt him, Captain Fantasy said. He raised his voice. Space boy, I'll get you out of this. Don't worry. But he wouldn't get me out of this. And I knew it. And he knew it, too. I saw the anguish in his broad face, so open, so easy to read. He couldn't fly up here to save me. He'd never believed he could fly. They had him cold and he'd do anything they said to save me. To save Space Boy, the one he loved, the one he hadn't been able to save before, even if he didn't remember that failure. Do you accept Captain Fantasy? Blitz insisted. Yes, he said, his voice small. Don't hurt him. No, Captain, I shouted. Don't do it! Tear them apart! Forget about me! No one below reacted. They let me listen, but not transmit, for obvious reasons. And they could play this game again and again, I realized. Just stick the captain in a white room for a while until he forgot everything, then stage the scene again. He wouldn't get fed up. He wouldn't realize they'd never free Space Boy. They probably wouldn't bother with me after a while. Just dress someone else like Space Boy. Wrap somebody in tinfoil and the captain would believe it was Space Boy from this distance. This had been Kelly's plan all along, to get the captain, the most powerful being in the world, to work for her. I couldn't allow that. Space Boy had died once, at Baron Von Blitz's hands. And when he died, Captain Fantasy went berserk, destroyed the artillery, killed the Baron, broke the entire German tank line, and changed the course of the war. That death, the death of his boy lover, drove the captain to perform feats of heroism unparalleled i didn't think about it for too long i knew i'd talk myself out of it i refused to dwell on the small possibility of my own survival either i'd live or i wouldn't the result would be worthwhile either way all that talk at the facility about the greater good must have gotten to me the glass box was strong the platform below me well braced But Kelly hadn't known about my smart suit, about the built-in musculature. To help me do somersaults and shit, Brady had said, but it could do more. I braced my hands on the glass walls, lifted my legs, and kicked straight down. The captain and the bad guys looked up at the thud, but I didn't stop. I kicked again, felt the metal shiver. One more would do it. I looked the captain in the eye, and I blew him a kiss. I kicked the platform as hard as I could, the smart suit driving my legs like pistons. I screamed when my left femur snapped and thought of poor stupid Carl Spandau, arms broken for love. The hinges snapped and the trapdoor fell open. I held myself up with the pressure of my arms against the walls for a moment and looked down at the whirring blades. They didn't fill the whole pit. There were gaps, but they filled enough of it. I let go and fell. "'twisting mightily in the air, "'pushing my Touretter's speed "'and the smart suit's agility to the limit. "'The last thing I heard was the captain "'calling his dead lover's name. "'When I woke, Brady Doolittle "'sat beside my hospital bed, holding my hand. "'Lee,' he said, hoarse. "'He looked like he hadn't slept, "'red-eyed with mussed hair. "'You bastard! "'I looked at him, then at my hand. "'Pink. Unscarred, soft, new tissue. I lived, I said, a little surprised. It's a miracle, he said. You lost your arms and legs right up to the shoulders and the thighs. The blades nicked your head and torso. But you lived. A miracle. I didn't argue. I'd done what I intended, twisted so the blades wouldn't damage anything vital, just my extremities. The shock rendered me unconscious, but... "'Bodies are smart, especially metamorph bodies. "'My wounds sealed as soon as my limbs came off. "'How long?' Four months,' Brady said. "'We've been pumping you full of food, Lee, right into your veins. "'It was damn creepy watching your arms and legs grow again, "'like watching parts of a baby grow up in time-lapse.' "'Ever the apt metaphor,' I said, voice raspy from long disuse. What happened? I didn't know what I meant. Kelly, or the storm troop, or the captain. Probably all of it. The captain went batshit, Lee. He destroyed everything. He shook his head. The most wanted list has been considerably revised. Lots of names got crossed off that day. Our boys were nearby. They rushed in when the base went boom and got you and the captain out. Kelly? Brady shook his head. We don't know. The captain has never killed a woman. He didn't think she mattered, he said, thought she was a girlfriend, and didn't chase when she ran off. We didn't find Mengele, either. Mengele's dead. You're sure? I nodded, tired of talking, then thought of something else I wanted to say. The captain's back in his white room, I guess? Brady grinned. No, Hoss, he's not. He's still our guest. But he's recovered. I didn't breathe for a moment. What? We don't know how, but he's all better, since shortly after we got him back here, he remembers everything, pretty much. And what he didn't know, we told him. He wants to meet you. He looked at his watch. It's time for your pills right now, though. What kind of pills? He shrugged. I'm not a doctor, Lee. I nodded, swallowed what he gave me. Some of them were drugs to regulate the Tourette's, I figured. I wondered how long it would take Brady to tell me about that. Whether he'd admit that Captain Fantasy gave me the syndrome, or just say it mysteriously developed. Time would tell. I tried not to expect too much from Brady. The captain being okay. That was good news. Very good. A few days later, I got to see the captain. The room where we met differed from the white room in particular's. It had a nice dark carpet, wallpaper, armchairs. But essentially it served the same function. A place for a powerful, dangerous, wonderful man to wait. He wore jeans and a dark blue sweatshirt now, his hair a red crew cut, and he looked at me for a long time. You don't look a damn thing like Space Boy, he said at last. I smiled. I had a different face then. I sat gingerly in the chair. My new appendages were tender. I tore all the bugs out of this room, the captain said matter-of-factly. They haven't had time to put in new surveillance equipment. We need to talk in the meantime. I nodded slowly. Okay. I apologize for kissing you. Understand, I mistook your identity. Looking at you now, I have to say, you're not even my type. He smiled. A ghost of his go-to-hell grin. Understood, sir. My face wanted to blush, but I wouldn't let it. I loved Space Boy in a special way. Most people don't know that. Nobody but you and me now. I'd like to keep it that way. Your secret's safe, Captain. There's something else most people don't know. He sighed, looked contemplatively at the wallpaper. Seeing him like this, so weary and passive, struck me as wrong. He should have been out busting heads for God and country, not sitting tired in a small room. I have a lot of control over my own mind, my own brain. I don't get hurt. I don't get old. I can see farther than most, hear better. Mostly I don't think about how I do it. I just do. But I can think about it and control things. He looked me in the eye. When you met me, I didn't know what year it was, and I didn't know Space Boy had died. I liked it that way, Mr. Lee. I had a hard time after the war, as you may know. One day, in the 70s, I decided I didn't like my life anymore. Suicide always seemed like a coward's way to me, and I didn't know if I could die anyway. The prospect of living forever Without him, it didn't appeal. So I thought about my brain for a while. Read about some things. Amnesia. Karsakov syndrome. He crossed his legs, clasped his hands over his knee. See where I'm going with this? You gave yourself Karsakov syndrome, I said, both surprised and not surprised. It made sense. The best days of my life ended when Spaceboy died, Lee. I wanted them back. He shrugged. After seeing you get cut up, that trauma repeated. Something shook loose in my head, and I remembered it all. I thought I'd try to make a go of my life again. He shook his head. It's no good. I just feel too... heavy. But I wanted to talk to you. To tell you. To ask you to keep... "'My secrets. "'I want to go back, Mr. Lee. "'They'll say I had a relapse. "'Nobody but you will know different.' "'He held out his hand. "'I took it. "'He shook my hand gently. "'Sir,' I said, "'Sir, I never told you. "'I grew up reading about you, and—' "'His face brightened. "'Are you a doctor?' he said. "'Say, that must have been some knock on the head I took.' I disengaged my hand from his, carefully, and stood. I turned my back to leave, then stopped. I faced him. He'd only remember for a few moments, but that would be enough. "'Sir,' I said, "'you're my hero.' He smiled slowly, his whole face lightning, like the sun filling the sky. "'Thank you, son!' Thank you. I shut the door behind me.
0: Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at Magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Timothy Dalton said, You can't relate to a superhero to a superman, but you can identify with a real man, who in times of crisis draws forth some extraordinary quality from within himself, and triumphs, but only after a struggle.